0: Welcome to Cup of Joe, where we explore restoration history, and I'm your host for this, Karen Peter. Now, here at Cup of Joe, we partner with Community of Christ Historic Sites Foundation to interview the presenters from their seasonal lecture series. Our guest today is Eric Paul Rogers. Now, Eric's been with us before. And as I went and looked back, it was the episode on Mark Hill Forscut, Mormon missionary, Morisite Apostle, RLDS Minister. So it may be the first thing that we discuss, um, Eric, is these titles to your lectures. We might need to have a conversation about some of these. But Eric uh, has studied organizations within the Restoration Movement, particularly the Church of the Firstborn or the Morisites, Community of Christ, which was formerly the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the Apostolic United Brethren, or what's known as the Allred Group. And I'm pretty sure that's a fundamentalist sect, is it not? That's
1: correct, yeah. Okay. Polygamous fundamentalists.
0: Okay. And his research has been published in a number of books and journals, including Curriculum and in Teaching, Educating About Religious Diversity and Interfaith Engagement, a handbook for student affairs, Doctrine and Covenants Reference Companion, Journal of Mormon History. The Persistence of Polygamy, Fundamentalist Mormon Polygamy from 1890 to the Present. Also, the Religious Educator and the John Whitmer Historical Association Journal. That's quite a litany there of publications. So this is really interesting. I'm not sure I knew all that last time that we visited. (laughs) That's wonderful. Wonderful. So your contribution to the Historic Sites Foundation 2023 Spring Lecture Series is titled, From Morrisite to Josephite and Beyond. And I am wondering if there's some connection to your Mark Forcecut research that you did in this, and if that somehow connected you to this?
1: Yes, it, it, it's all interrelated. And I will mention Forcecut in my presentation on okay. um, this Thursday. But uh, I, so I will point, I, I will pay more attention to others than forcecut and point people to. Our interview last year and to the uh, Spring Lecture Series lecture last year on Forest Kit.
0: Excellent. That'll give some good background to some of this as we go on. Yeah. So, the intro to this lecture for 2023 uh, says that you're going to explore the organization and development of the Church of the Firstborn, and that was under the prophet leader Joseph Morris. Also, the conflict that resulted in the death of Morris, which sounds ominous, and the dispersion of Morris's followers among various faith communities, including the RLDS uh, tradition, the RLDS Church. So let's get started with the basic question of who the heck was Joseph Morris? Yeah.
1: Well, I wish we knew more, but we do know some some basic ideas around Joseph Morris, where he came from, and how he ended up where he did. He we we know he was born in England in uh, Cheshire County. In December of 1822. So that gives you a bit of frame. So Joseph Smith was born 1805. We have Joseph Morris 1822. And he uh, converted to Mormonism at the age of 23. I haven't been able to find any details around his conversion story. But uh, we do know that there is a baptismal record. So at 23, so that would have put, put him joining the church in 1845. So, again, we're we're in the uh, post-martyrdom period in uh, Nauvoo, uh, but prior to the exodus of um, a good portion of the church to the West. He he married before he emigrated to the U.S., and his first wife was named Mary Thorpe. She was also from County Cheshire, and they had four children. However, three of the four died in infancy um, before emigration. To America, and as I was preparing, I found some additional source material um, around uh, those children so there's, there's some details there that I didn't know before preparing to visit with you. so um, they emigrated then in 1850 in uh, I'm not exactly sure there I think around 1850 and before they w- moved west to Utah territory, they lived for two years in St. Louis and then moved to Pittsburgh. And we do have record of him serving as a branch president for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the Pittsburgh area. So convert in England, emigrates to America, actually given a position of leadership within the church. And then Joseph and Mary moved to Utah in 1853. And they live uh, first in Sand Peak County. For those that don't aren't, aren't familiar with Utah um, geography Sanpete County is some of the towns would be Manti, Mount Pleasant, Ephraim, and it's about a hundred miles. Mount Pleasant is about a hundred miles south of Salt Lake. And if I say here, I'm in Salt Lake. I'm downtown Salt Lake. So when I say here, I mean Salt Lake. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then um, they moved north to Provo, uh, which is in Utah County, about fifty miles south of Salt Lake. And then later to Slaterville, which is about 40 miles north of Salt Lake. Slaterville is in the Ogden area. While he was in Provo, he was known for his religious zeal. Some people called him Praying Joe because he would just drop down in the middle of the street and begin to pray um, out loud. And that garnered some attention. And it wasn't always positive. His reputation was not necessarily a positive one, particularly with local church leaders. And Joseph actually uh, accused uh, local church leaders of trying to get Mary to leave him. Now, this was at a period of time during what we call the Mormon Reformation, where there was a lot of enthusiasm and energy and talk around elevating the spirituality of the people. And it wasn't unheard of to, to try to convince a woman that priesthood leaders, that church leaders perceived as being married to uh, not quite so uh, elevated a man to leave him to marry. And, and because of polygamy, right, there were all kinds of opportunities then. And, and unfortunately, or fortunately I, I'm, I'm not, I won't make that judgment statement, but Mary does choose to leave uh, Joseph um, and ends up some four years later uh, being sealed to a man named Henry Beale. In 1857 in the endowment house in salt lake city so as he divorces mary he's trying to find other marriage opportunities and it seems like he's being thwarted by local uh, church leaders on every count which he obviously does not like and complains about and he, and it caused him to openly criticize local church leaders and and their teachings in a letter in 1857, so they've come to Utah in 53. Mary leaves him. He's having these these contentious interactions with local church leaders. He writes a letter in, in December of 1857 to Brigham Young, and he outlines the abuses that he suffered at the hands of the Provost State President, whose name is uh, James C. Snow. But in addition to his complaints about local priesthood, he Uh, alludes to his role as a prophet. So he is writing to Brigham Young, the prophet, although I'm not sure Brigham Young saw himself as a prophet. Joseph Smith was the prophet. But there's that initial allusion to um, to, to, to maybe uh, Joseph Morris playing a role as a prophet. And there's no evidence that Brigham Young or his secretaries respond back to Joseph Morris But we do have those uh, letters or that letter in particular in the archives. And um, in the margin, there's a note that says he's weak minded, Uh suggesting possibly um, some type of mental illness, which, again, could account for local church leaders intervening in his efforts to marry, especially when when because of plural marriage it might not be easy to find a new wife. And so one way would be to take the wives of other men. There are some extreme examples, and I don't want to represent these as, it suggests that these are representative, but there are accounts of young men being castrated. So that kind of took them out of the marriageable pool for women during, especially during that, that period in the 1850s, when there was uh, when the Mormon Reformation was at its height. And then over the next three years, so from 1857 to 1860, Morris writes more than a dozen additional letters to Young in very grandiose terms, with very poor spelling and grammar, which I'm sure didn't add to his his, his reputation. Um, so it's it's not surprising that Young didn't respond to the letters. But we do again have those those letters from Joseph Morris and marginal notes with words like balderdash uh, in the margins. <laughs> so so that's kind of this the, the who Joseph Morris is, where he came from, and what led up to um, circumstances uh, up to the founding of of the church that he organized.
0: So, being coming out of England, coming to the U.S., serving in leadership, and then all these process is beginning to happen where he's kind of ousted from leadership
1: yeah, definitely marginalized
0: very much so unfortunately happening at the same time where as you described the reformation where there was kind of this elevation of of spirituality was it his, the charismatic nature of his behavior that seemed to his public behavior that seemed to be part of the problem yes and again i think it was
1: that his particular uh, brand of charisma that was perceived, yeah, yeah. perceived negatively, right? The, uh, others who were charismatic. So I'll, I'll mention a little bit later, John Banks, who becomes one of his key convert, one of Joseph Morris's key converts. Also very charismatic, but mm-hmm. a polished speaker, uh, uh, a former mission president in England. And he wasn't perceived in the same way as Morris. So there was something about Morris's personality and his particular brand of charisma that for some came across as off kilter, perhaps perhaps reflective of, of mental illness, derangement. Yet he found others, including John Banks, who I mentioned, and Mark Forscott, who I'll also mention, who perceived him as a prophet.
0: So that was kind of where I was going with this. So he's ousted from leadership he's marginalized and yet the church of the firstborn comes about so what happens there that brings that to fruition
1: so i I think the mormon reformation is critical so we've talked about elevating the spiritual uh nature of the the latter-day saints they've been you know the first companies arrive in 1847 so it's been 10 years that they've been there. And they've been focusing on survival. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the things that drives Brigham Young. And two of, of Brigham Young's key leaders that drive the Mormon Reformation are George A. Smith, who Joseph Morris absolutely does not like. And and when Morris is critical of Brigham Young, he often uh, cites that it's it's actually George A. Smith behind it. It's not Brigham. Ah. But George A. Smith is an outspoken um, advocate for the Reformation, for rebaptism, for recommitment, and Jedediah Grant. These, J- Jedediah Grant, George A. Smith, and Brigham Young are kind of the key voices of the Mormon Reformation. And their language a- and public preaching is very strong and sometimes violent in nature towards those who. Don't measure up or who are uh, apostates or who are Gentiles, in other words, non non Mormons and the language opens the way to justify Mormons inflicting violence on their Gentile or apostate or uh, less than measuring up um, Latter Day Saint.
0: Uh, So is this this kind of the same time period as the Mormon Wars? Is this the same time with Johnson?
1: Exactly. So in in the midst of the Mormon Reformation, you also have Johnson's army coming from the east to put down what was termed the the Mormon Rebellion, where Brigham Young refused to allow uh, federal judges and and governor to be put in place because he was the governor. So there was a time when you have a Mormon governor in the state of Deseret and a uh, federally appointed non-Mormon governor in uh, the territory of Utah who were were competing. So you have the Mormon Reformation, you have the arrival of, or or the pending arrival of federal troops to put down the Mormon rebellion. And then September 11th, Uh, 1857, you have the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Mm -hmm. And uh, while the perpetrators of the massacre initially placed blame on the uh, local Paiute uh, Indians, it was fairly well known that Mormons were at least involved, if not uh, the instigators of that attack. So you have a very volatile social, political, cultural environment Mm -hmm. in which Joseph Morris is feeling. Marginalized, and I think that your your question is is very um, important because I think it's in that context that people like John Banks or Mark Forrestcutt, who are also opposed to polygamy, maybe it's not so much uh, Joseph Morris's charisma or even his doctrine, although Seth Bryant might disagree with me on that. I think it's more as One of the few local alternatives to Brigham Young that reflects uh, continuing revelation and a charismatic leader um, that's not institutionalizing and corporatizing the church in ways that they saw Brigham Young doing that. And it doesn't have the same level of authoritarianism that Young seems to impose upon the church.
0: Okay, so we've established kind of the climate and the context from, from which this comes. How does this actually happen? What happens so that what we end up with is an established church of the firstborn? What is yeah. What has to happen for that to take place?
1: So I mentioned John Banks. John became one of Joseph Morris's proselytizers. He was one that was very effective at uh, conveying the message of Joseph Morris is a prophet. Come listen and follow him. As I mentioned before, Banks had served in significant leadership roles. He was well respected. However, when he came, he he was he understood a promise from Brigham Young when he went to serve as president of the mission in, in England that when he returned. So we're talking about John Banks now. John Banks understood when he returned, Brigham Young would install him as the presiding bishop of the church. So when John Banks returns, he goes to Brigham Young just across the street here (laughs) from where I'm sitting and said, uh, "Okay, I'm ready to step into that role. And and Young reneged on his uh, promise, which led to a fistfight and to John Banks um, also being marginalized (laughs) um, because of the way that he was treated by by church leaders. So Banks lives in Pleasant Grove, which is in the Provo area, which is to the south, and he's proselytizing there. Uh, Joseph Morris moves to Slaterville, which is about 30 miles north, 40 miles north of Salt Lake, and moves into the community, moves into the home of some people that uh, were open to him and who began to perceive him as a prophet. While he's in Slaterville, he starts to get something of a a following. Mm -hmm. Now, in in the Ogden, South Ogden area, there's a little town called South Weber. Mm -hmm. South Weber has, at the time, in the 1850s, in 1853, the Latter day Saints there built a fort for Indian protection. Because of Johnson's army coming in, all of the forts and all of the residents in northern Utah moved south, so they wouldn't be here when Johnson's army arrived, and so they abandoned the fort. So by, 18, by the late 1850s, after Johnson's army comes, conflict is avoided. Johnson's army sets up at Camp Floyd, which is kind of in the Provo area, but to the west, where it's not, where they're not in the Mormon community. There's this, there's this fort left there, and it's not occupied. And so Morris and his followers begin to move into the fort and to occupy it. Now, one of the key players in this is Richard Cook. Richard Cook is the bishop of the South Weber Ward. Well, guess who Morris converts? Bishop, bishop Cook, along with about seven, 16 or 17 of his ward members. So as people gather, you have starting to be in the hundreds dozens and then hundreds of people following morris at kington fort and maybe a hundred members of the south weber ward and so this becomes obviously something of a threat to the general church leadership and brigham young sends two apostles john taylor and wilford woodruff to the south weber ward they investigate and excommunicate Richard Cook and the other ward members who follow Morris. So on April 6th, that date should ring familiar, oh, yeah. 1861, so oh. 31 years after Joseph Smith organizes the Church of Christ in New York, Morris organizes a new church with guess how many members? Six.
0: Again, so, so we're-
1: we're following the the pattern of the of the church that Joseph Smith organized with Joseph Morris, John Cook, Richard Cook, John Firth, William Kendall, and Nathan Byrne as members, and they call the church the Church of Jesus Christ of Saints of the Most High that was shortened to Morrisite, and then later iterations came to be known as the Church of the Firstborn.
0: Okay, so why six men were there
1: because that was this that was the pattern established by Joseph Smith okay. in, the, in, in the formation of the, the church that Joseph Smith Jr. organized.
0: So there would have been many, many, many more followers. He just That's wanted right. to he just wanted to mirror as
1: as there were in um New York in, in
0: 1830.
1: All right. And On that day, on April 6, 1861, Morris issued a proclamation that said all of his followers should gather to Kington Fort. And this quote that has been, uh, and he he expresses this, this statement that has been quoted since, he says, because Christ will come tomorrow. And they held all things in common. So while that wasn't true of Joseph Smith Jr.'s church in april of 1830 it certainly became a communal consecration community after they after they encounter sydney Rigdon and others in in uh, kirtland um so they held everything all things in common and um because christ is coming tomorrow they some sources say that they even trampled their crops
0: Uh.
1: as a expression of faith and confidence in the prophecy of uh, Joseph Morris, that that, that Christ's coming was imminent, that his second advent was around the corner, as has been the case since the days of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yes. And the the Apostle Paul and, and the early apostles.
0: Yes. So I can understand that there would be groups that had allegiance to local leaders like with the bishop in south weber and they would join so were they all people who had felt marginalized or somehow disgruntled with brigham young or with other church leaders or were there other groups of people
1: yeah i I would be i would be i I don't think i could confidently say all right We're, we're generalizing here but i think yes what we see is poor immigrant anti-polygamist, anti-authoritarian, may have bad, had bad experiences with Brigham Young or Heber C. Kimball or others of the 12 or others of the, the, the Brighamite leadership. I, I think those are commonalities among most of those who aligned with Morris. So George Dove, who was one of uh, Morris's followers, would eventually publish Morris's Revelations, but not until 1886. And those were published in San Francisco, uh, many, you know, decades later. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that George Dove did, uh, by the way, uh, Morris's Revelations were published under the title, The Spirit Prevails. Among the, 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 the documents that Dove preserved was what was called a role of membership. That role of membership contained about 430 names. And of those 430 names, I've identified, I've identified or, or distilled down to about 150 surnames. So I mentioned that they came primarily from or they came primarily from the UK.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you see surnames like Adams, Hill, McHugh, McCune, also from Scandinavia particularly from Sweden and especially from Denmark. So names like An- Andersen, Christofferson, Goodmanson, and also from Switzerland, um, names like uh, Diethelm, Gull, Werner, Baer, of course, the, ger- the German versions of those, the German language versions of those, mostly from Switzerland. And many of those followers were, there were recent immigrants. They were unable to speak English, which was another marginalizing influence. And so Morris actually directed many of his revelations to be translated into Danish so that they could be consumed by his followers.
0: Mm -hmm. So when I'm thinking in the broader context of of immigrants coming into the United States from those areas you named. That was a common issue as is people would get here not knowing that polygamy was part of what was happening, be disappointed when they discovered that by the time they got to Utah and then trying to figure out what to do as they're living in a marginalized way in in the, in the Deseret. Yes. So let me, you let hear me, that we, in a lot of different stories. Let,
1: let me give you an example. Um, so I mentioned that I would... Uh, I mentioned, I think I mentioned John, John L. Baer. Uh, Bear will end up in, in the RLDS church. But he said this in his uh, autobiography. He says, and this is commenting on his arrival in Utah. Reader, you may think how I felt coming from Babylon in full confidence to go to the saints of the Most High and then find them such transgressors of the law, which would not have been tolerated in Babylon so-called. Oh my God, my God, what will be the end of this? Oh, Israel of old has gone astray in spite of the warnings of the prophets, and here Israel of latter day is going astray. Yea, their prophets and their leaders, their seducers. As we arrived at the city square, which was as dusty as earth could be made, and a strong wind blowing, we were in a puzzle thousands of miles away from home and friends, destitute in a strange country with but little understanding of their language no advice no help no assistance in any way there you are root or die
0: oh my gosh
1: now that now that was destitute. written in retrospect yes which but still. We, we all look back on our on our past and interpret it through the lens of where we are now but still we we i could you know there there are many such Comments. Forrest could, could have said the same thing, yeah. uh, with the exception of the language barrier.
0: Well, oh, oh my goodness, that's as that's as lamentations as you can get from from uh, that perspective. So, we have this group of people who, as you were describing them, poor immigrant anti polygamous, disgruntled you were describing the the rlgs folks that stayed back in the midwest as well that's but, that's our but, heritage but you know prior to
1: 1860 there is no right uh right. you know official organization
0: right. but the same feelings the same yeah. kinds of yes. same kinds of reactions yeah. okay so there were obviously a lot of similarities in the beliefs with the morocytes compared to kind of mainstream Mormonism at the time was polygamy really the main difference or were there other significant differences? Morris
1: was, was fairly innovative. So he claimed to have his received numerous spiritual manifestations, but he doesn't start to uh, publicly talk about them until 1857, but From his writings, you get the idea that there was a cosmological view that was forming in him that was certainly uh, influenced by the teachings of Joseph Smith, Jr., um, but that were perhaps even more expansive or different um, as early as his time in Pittsburgh. So Morris's revelation in 1857 clearly established him in his own mind and for those that listened to him as a prophet. But that placed him at odds with Brigham Young and the church. Now, the way that he tried to manage that with Brigham Young is, Brigham, you're a prophet. I'm a prophet. You're to be the temporal leader of the church. I will be the spiritual leader of the church. So, therefore, getting marginal notes like Balderdash from either Brigham (laughs) Young or the secretaries that responded and wrote. However, that transformed and shifted where Morris taught that Brigham Young was a fallen prophet, that no more uh, missionaries should be sent out into the world, which is is a a, a a pretty big deal, right? And if the second advent is so near, then why send out missionaries? We've got mm-hmm. to get ourselves ourselves spiritually and physically prepared for that. And and now I'll I'll, I'll look at I'll, I'll hint at some of those innovations and. And they're quite extensive, and I can't—I I wouldn't claim to fully understand all of Morris's teachings. But Morris's revelation designated him as the seventh angel of the apocalypse, and it outla- his teachings. Outline ten steps to godhood. So you do have, you know, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, depending on who you believe, write this these teachings around uh, becoming gods. And one of the ways that he definitely de- departed was in his explanation of the doctrine of reincarnation. So he saw himself as having lived many multiple multiple lives. I, I, I'm thinking of my following of a recent the the, the national news of a, a trial in Idaho around Lori Vallow, with along with her husband Chad Debo, were Latter Day Saints who also taught multiple lifetimes, multiple probation.s multiple identities and this was something that Morris taught as well and then as I've mentioned already the immediate advent of Jesus Christ so far he he goes so far as to say January 1 1862 is the day
0: I don't know there was probably snow that's probably why (laughs) I didn't. I've been to Utah in January that's probably what happened (laughs) okay so we get an idea of what he was like which we can look in community of Christ history and find people that have had similar kinds of pronouncements, um, over the years. That's, I think that's part of kind of goes hand in hand with some of the restoration traditions and, um, experiences, but this gets, um, this takes a dire turn because in your, your description of your lecture, you talk about the conflict that leads to his death. So what goes wrong?
1: What doesn't go wrong?
0: Oh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) so from the beginning, and I've pointed to to some of the conflicts, but the Morrisites had ongoing conflicts with their Mormon neighbors. We'll just jump to to Kington Fort. So we're in the fort, and an example would be the Mormon, their Mormon neighbors would harass them. So a, a, a quick example would be they they ride their horses into the fort ride their horses into a home take a hat off of a mormonite man um take the horses or the other properties of the mormonite uh, uh individuals and when uh, they were retrieved by the owners the the mormons would bring charges against the Morisites for theft yeah and Local law enforcement, including Lot Smith, who plays into the Mormon rebellion and uh, efforts to stop Johnson's army from coming into the Salt Lake Valley, Lot Smith was was sheriff in in uh, Davis County, Weber County, and and so um, there there was all kinds of conflicts going on. You've you got to have your grain milled. Well, if you go to a a Mormon miller, they're not going to mill your grain because you're mm-hmm. a Mormon site. So. It it made life very difficult. And so there was all kinds of conflicts. But when you have the advent of Christ predicted and then fail and then fail again and fail again, some of Morris's adherents began to uh, lose faith. And the problem with losing faith is that you wanted to then leave the community. But the problem with leaving the community is you already consecrated everything to the community. So if you had consecrated a horse or a wagon or some other property, and then you take that and leave, how does the community perceive that? Right, Perceived as a theft. So William Jones was one of Morris's first converts. He became dissatisfied and attempted to leave and take with him his consecrated property, but was detained. Well, that's illegal detention. You You can't do that. There were three individuals who ultimately would be would leave, and Morris organized a posse, went out, retrieved them, brought the property and those three individuals back, and imprisoned them in a building in a small cabin uh, in Kington Fort. And so family members petitioned the local court, in particular the Chief Justice of the Third District Court, who was John F. Kinney. To order their release, Kinney orders uh, issues a writ of habeas corpus, which is a requirement that they release these three individuals, and the Morrisites re- receive re- refuse to receive the writ and so Judge Kinney gives the writ and orders the territorial militia to enforce the writ so that 's problematic to some degree because you have uh, a military body enforcing a civil writ but the, the territorial marshal is out of the territory at the time and so a deputy territorial marshal is tasked with enforcing the writ his name is robert t burton 17 years later he's going to be in the, the presiding bishopric of the church and that that will and he'll be brought up in charges in relation to what happens at kington fort so burton organizes the, the Nauvoo legion the territorial militia and as they move north from salt lake through davis county other members of the militia are, are are joining in with him and so we don't have exact numbers but by the time they get to the bluffs on this so kington fort is down in a river valley where the weber river flows through so you've got bluffs on the north bluffs on the south The territory militia sets up on the bluffs on the south with cannon. And sightseers, observers, audience, local community members gather on the North Butte to watch what's going to take place. And Burton gives an order to a herds boy who's herding sheep and says, take this to Morris. It basically requires the surrender of Morris within 30 minutes. There are then all kinds of different accounts of what goes down. But the basic account is that Burton says, they didn't respond, I'm gonna send a warning shot over the fort. So meanwhile, in the fort, they've seen the, the, the troops on the bluff And Morris has gone into the fort to get a revelation. The 12 have just come from a morning meeting. Morris goes to get a revelation and the rest gather in an open air Bowery just outside the fort. So so they're praying for the prophet to receive a revelation. Morris is seeking a revelation and they're expecting a conflict. Morris is expecting either to be saved or that the that the conflict ultimately will will spark the the coming of Jesus Christ, that it's a necessary thing, but that ultimately they'll be protected. Well, that first cannon shot that that Burton says is a warning shot, falls short of the fort, tumbles into the Bowery, kills two women, including uh, John Bear's wife, Susanna Seedler, and takes the chin off of Mary Christofferson, who's a 14-year-old girl which then sends everything into uproar and basically is the beginning of a three-day battle that takes place between the militia and the Morisites. By Sunday, there are 10 or 11 dead, including two of the militia members. And the Morisites put up a, a flag of truce. Burton rides into the fort They've ordered that the, the arms be stacked and Burton says that Morris gives the command to go for the weapons at which time Burton shoots Morris. He shoots banks. There's a woman who tries to throw herself in, in front of Morris. Who's also killed by Burton. And that's why he's brought up 17 years later on murder charges of Mrs. Bowman mm-hmm. while he's serving as a presiding Bishop in the church. And, and, and essentially with the, the murder of Mrs. Bowman and uh, the, the the Morrisite war was officially over. So that's so it was Friday the the 13th of June 1862 that the battle started and by Sunday morning uh, Morris and Banks and several others were dead and the rest were taken into custody by the militia.
0: So, I I have two follow up questions with that. One is what happened to them after they were taken into custody? Where did they go? How did they disperse? And second, what happened with the trial
1: with Burton? Do you want, so I'll start with Burton. Okay. Burton was acquitted, unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. Basically, the, the defense argument was that he was just executing his duties and responsibilities. He was under threat, armed threat by. Uh, Morris's followers. What happened to them is that they were brought up on charges. There were different charges for different individuals, Mm -hmm. ultimately, by next, by the next spring. So the spring of 1863, um, Judge Kinney, a non-Mormon, actually, I think Kinney had been replaced by this time, but the non-Mormon judge that was in place dismissed all of the charges.
0: Did they stay in Utah?
1: So Yes and no. <laughs> there is a little Pioneer Cemetery in South Weber. I was just there yesterday taking some pictures for my presentation on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually a, a, a headstone that says uh, Joseph Warner. So this was one of the Swiss immigrants. And then in quotes, Morrisite, 1870. So here you have eight years after the conflict, he dies and is buried in the Pioneer uh, cemetery, but still identified as a Morrisite.
0: As Morisite.
1: Yeah. Interestingly, when I was several years ago, I was tromping through the community, just knocking doors and trying to talk to people about uh, the history. There was a woman that I met and she said, because of where she lived in South Weber, not because of her heritage, but where she lived in South Weber, as a child in elementary school, she was derogatorily called a Morisite. In, in the 50s.
0: How interesting.
1: Yeah. So where did they go? Colonel Connor, Patrick Connor, who was over the military unit, uh, the non-Mormon military unit, the federal military unit in Salt Lake, took a group, a large group of the Morrisites, and they uh, went to Soda Springs, Idaho. And a number of them stayed there. John Bear was one of those that went to Soda Springs initially. I have family who went there, Mary Christofferson, who lost her chin. She married Niels Anderson, and Mary and Niels Christofferson Anderson lived out their lives in Soda Springs. There's a monument, to uh, a headstone to them uh, that tells the story of the Morrisites from the Morrisite perspective in Soda Springs. And so a large contingent went to Soda Springs and Some went immediately from Soda to Deer Lodge, Montana. Another contingent went uh, directly west into Nevada and California. Fort Mark Forscott was one of those who went to Ruby Valley, Nevada. The doves went on to Carson Valley. And so that's why you get the doves eventually in California in the San Francisco area. And then you have some dispersion and realignment and recruitment and proselytizing because there is schism within Morseism, including Walla Walla Washington, where we get the Walla Walla Jesus, which is an interesting story.
0: Okay, Um, this I'm going to have to hear. So either (laughs) save time at the end and tell me or it's another, it's another episode.
1: (laughs) So, so I'll, I'll just hit on it quickly. George Williams became kind of the de facto leader but he wasn't even at Kington Fort. He was in Salt Lake. He wasn't even a Morrisite until after the battle, but he steps in, he claims he's the prophet Canaan as others claimed. Um, and he steps into leadership and, and uh, particularly in leadership in the, in the deer lodge community. When, when I say deer lodge, some might be unhappy with that. I'm not more specific than that. Barb Walden, for example, knows it was Dempsey Creek and, uh and Racetrack Creek, which are actually outside of Deer Lodge.
0: They're huge mining areas and canyons yeah, up in exactly. that area. Yeah.
1: yeah. So the, the Walla Walla Jesus um, was William Davies. So William Davies was one of Morris's followers and he ends up in Montana and then gets a revelation that he needs to go to Walla Walla. And while there discovers or has a revelation that his child is a reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And so his child becomes what becomes known as the Walla Walla Jesus and actually got quite a following from the region who believed in, in this little baby as the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. He had two more children and they were the Holy ghost and the father, God, the father. And so you had a Trinity born to William Davies. Unfortunately, Two of those three children passed away in, in childhood, and so the, the the grandiose vision that he might have had for his community uh, wavered and fell apart. You, you actually have Morrisite, arguably Morrisite leaders and followers in the Deer Lodge area, and there's the only surviving building in the world that's Morrisite is at Racetrack Creek. In, just off of I-90 in uh, just south of Deer Lodge. And I actually went to a, an Eliasson family reunion there. I kind of invited myself. And Eliassons were among Morrisites who then joined Community of Christ, LDS Church in Deer Lodge. My family members, Katie and Anders Christofferson, joined the RLDS Church in Deer Lodge in 1868, and 1870.
0: Was it that same little white building they meet in now?
1: Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I got to get into that white building at that Elias and family reunion because they still own that four acres there. And I'd never, I've driven by and tried to get into the building and never was able to until uh, 2012 when that Elias and family reunion took place. So we met at the RLDS, sort of the Community of Christ Chapel in Deer Lodge, and then out at the House of the Lord
0: Mm -hmm. at Racetrack. Interesting. So I'm I'm watching the flow of this Soda Springs, Deer Lodge, Walla Walla. We're talking about the people who are following typical frontier trails of the time, either into mining or with cattle and the Old. the way the railroads went through. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay, so they disperse and and some in Deer Lodge, some in Walla Walla, some other places end up connecting with the RLDS tradition. So other than some of your family members, where else did that happen? And did people go back? Like wasn't it Forscutt went back towards Missouri at one point.
1: Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll point to two examples. Well, I've already told you about Katie and Anders Christofferson. Katie was a Hanson that married Anders Christofferson and they settled and raised their family in Deer Lodge. And uh, were members of the RLDS community there. Their descendants, for a variety of reasons, ended up becoming mainstream Protestants in in a variety of mainstream traditions. John Bear went initially to Soda Springs, but he was baptized in 1869. So this is seven years after the battle, the Morsite War, and he's baptized in Malad City, which is... North of Salt Lake, north of Ogden, before you get to Idaho, Pocatello and Idaho Falls. It's right on the Idaho-Utah border. And Bear is baptized in 1869 by uh, Edmund C. Brand. Um, and then he was confirmed by David H. Smith and E.C. Brand. So quite a, a nice <laughs> RLDS pedigree there.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: he was or, or, ordained an elder right after that in 1869 by E.C. Brand and served a mission to Switzerland and Germany as appointed by the, the annual conference or semi-annual conference in 1872. He returned in 74 from Switzerland, was ordained a 70 in Plano in 1880 by John H. Lake and Mark Hill Forscut and William H. Kelly. Um, and then at the semi-annual conference of 1880, he was again appointed to serve in Switzerland and in Germany. And he was, uh, he, he attended the St. Joseph branch and the ind- independence branch. Okay. Forrest who I have spoken about on previous occasions in episode 489 of Cup of Joe on Project Zion podcast.
0: Thanks for looking that up.
1: <laughs> um, you can go there to learn more about Forrest but he, Initially went joined the military and went to Ruby Valley. So there were no other Morrisites with him. He left the community, I think maybe largely due to Elizabeth's influence, and then moved back to Salt Lake and was baptized again without Elizabeth's knowledge in Salt Lake on New Year's Day, 1865. And by 1867, he leaves and goes east. And ends up in Limoni with Joseph the third. And eventually Elizabeth follows.
0: Yeah. That was a great episode. And then, I really encourage people to go and listen to that.
1: Yeah, and then, then Forrest Cut and Bear would cross paths <laughs> as they ministered um, for the remainder of their lives.
0: So in that episode, and you touched on it here, you have family connections through all of this that that is part of your interest. Yeah. Um what's What sparked that for you to really dive into this with the Morsites and the church of the firstborn?
1: Well, when I was courting my my wife in nineteen eighty six and seven and they and her family I met her family and they found out I was Mormon and she was had converted to Mormonism too. they were really unhappy. She had joined the church after she turned 18 because of the opposition of her family to joining the uh, the Mormon church. And so it was really me trying to understand that opposition, uh, where it was coming from, because I was expecting to spend the rest of my life with her and with her family. Um, we're no longer married, but I still consider her, her family my family. And I had an opportunity then to explore what is it that was that was causing that opposition. And it was really rooted in the history of the Morrisite movement in which their, her ancestors were involved. Anders and Katie Christofferson and others, those stories of aunt Mary getting her chin shot off the, the, the war itself. My wife's maternal grand grandfather was a Mason and he was, a, he, he, he was anti-Mormon because of the, Nauvoo endowment being taken from Masonic rites. So it was, it was that Morrisite and Mormon history that was their main reason for opposing her joining the church and also her to some degree uh, marrying a, a Latter-day Saint. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, they eventually left the RLDS church and joined mainstream Protestant denominations, but those stories got told and retold Those family reunions were in Soda Springs. So when you go to Soda Springs, you go to see Aunt Mary's grave. And what's Aunt Mary's grave? It tells the story. And it tells the Morrissette's version of the story, right? Right. Not that it was inaccurate, but it, it, it tells the story in a certain way. And so those stories about the abuses suffered at the hands of Mormons continued to be told and retold at reunions and in homes and continue to influence people's lives to this day. Yeah. They like me now.
0: Right. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. But that is true. Some of those old divisions, some of those old herds, they don't go away because we continually relive them yeah. as we tell our narrative and how we understand it. Yeah. this All of this is really fascinating to me. So the connections of some of these groups as they move into other places in the West is fascinating as well to see how Mormonism as well as these different groups began to grow and merge and split and and change um, in the part of the world where I'm most familiar, which is the Northwest. Yeah. So when you began to research this, when I first asked you, who was Joseph Morris? You said, well, we only know so much. So other than that challenge, what were some of the other challenges to to really putting this together into lecture form?
1: I would say limited source material. So we've already hinted at that, right? We just don't have that much about Joseph Morris. Also conflicting story. You get different perspectives depending on who's writing the account or telling the account. I also find it difficult to maintain objectivity and balance, which I'm not a trained historian, but I know that that's (laughs) an ideal within good uh, history. Give me an example of what you mean. It's easy to villainize villainize Brigham Young or Joseph Morris, depending on on your point of view. Mm -hmm. And so because it's easy to pick villains and victims that can blur my my objectivity, these are sensitive issues even today. I, I mentioned going door to door, knocking doors in South Weber. Some people don't want that history told and retold. And mm-hmm. they have their perspective. And if you take a different perspective or suggest that there are alternative narratives, that can be off-putting to somebody that is married to, committed to, lifelong, wh- whose ancestors were participants
0: mm-hmm.
1: on, on, one, on one side or the other. And so uh, that objectivity is difficult. And, and just the complexity of religious schism and the motives for disaffiliation or reaffiliation. Now, why did John Bearer join the RLDS church? Why does Forrest Why did Katie and Anders, why didn't Mary and Niels Christofferson in Soda Springs? Why wouldn't, you know, Joseph, the Josephite tradition, the RLDS or Community of Christ tradition appeal to them? Mm -hmm. Those without diaries, and you have to make inferences and you have to speculate and that's always then uh, can be influenced by bias and so it's just a really fascinating for me it's a fascinating endeavor a challenging endeavor and one that will probably never be answered and it's maybe that's why I like it so much I'll I'll be a little bit vulnerable I love golf and one of the things I love about golf is you know I'll never master that dang thing and Sometimes I'll hit a really good shot, but most of the times I don't. It's that good shot that keeps me coming back. It's Mrs. Peak opening her door in South Weaver and saying, okay, sit here. I'll be back in 15 minutes, but don't move. And then she comes back in 15 minutes with a cannonball that's been passed down from generation to generation that she's been willing that she was willing to share with me. That that's my good shot, right? That's that's the thing that I'm like, oh, this is so amazing and wonderful and cool. And, and, and there are all, I'm sure all kinds of misses along the way. I love Seth Bryant's district or master's thesis at the University of Florida in 2008. And in, he delves into a, a lot of those things around motive. And like I, I suggested earlier, he looks at, you know, he, he would make a more compelling case than I would, that it was what Joseph Morris was teaching that was really compelling to people that, and, and I don't feel, I, I, I would probably take the, the, uh, the side that it was not Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. It was still, it was still Mormonism, but it wasn't Brigham Young. And it wasn't those aspects of Brighamite Mormonism that they despised, but they also, you know, how would their lives have been different? What if Joseph Morris had been embraced by Brigham Young? What if he had like, Forskett had been called as a 70, you know, John Bear talked about root or die. What if they had rooted Mm -hmm. instead of resisting, you know, maybe Bear or Forrestcutt or others would have risen to leadership and become presidents of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Instead, they became leaders in the RLDS Church, who we revere today. So
0: how interesting. So when we began talking, you said that you had learned more about uh, Morris's children from when you first researched your lecture. What other new things did you discover, or maybe surprising things? Was there anything other than the cannonball <laughs> surprising that you discovered in this? I was struck, and
1: this, this is maybe something I relearned. Okay. Rather than learned, but I was struck by the radical ways in which religion. Evolves as individuals and, community, and communities kind of renegotiate the teachings and traditions that they inherit. And I, I've already mentioned the, the Lori, Lori Vallow Daybell trial and the ways in which that cult, that group of individuals renegotiated their most recent brand of Mormonism
0: mm-hmm. into
1: something new and innovative that spoke to people in ways that mainstream Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints doesn't, you're probably familiar with the um, movement within the U.S., particularly the Western U.S. of, (laughs) now now his name slipped my mind.
0: Denver Snuffer?
1: Yeah, Denver Snuffer. So they do not refer to themselves as Snufferites, but the idea is that they're, they're renegotiating in the current context, their religious tradition in ways that puts them at odds with the president of the LDS Church today, Russell Nelson, and caused them to lose their membership. So around fun- fundamentalism that isn't polygamist, mm-hmm. around the, the, the belief that we're returning to what something I don't think it exists, but to this pure Joseph Smith doctrine and belief and practice. So so focused on seeing God having a personal manifestation of, of Jesus Christ that's caused them to be marginalized and excluded and excommunicated from the mainstream LDS church. But people have flocked to Snuffer. And mm-hmm. and again, it's not even to Snuffer, it's to his ideas and the kinds of things that he's doing. And you know, whatever charismatic personality traits that he may have that that seems to be so, so I'm just struck by yeah. that. Um and, and I think I knew that and, and we observe it, but it's like, have, we, we really haven't gotten past that. We're continuing to renegotiate with each new generation, mm-hmm. our own yeah. religious tradition. And we, and we w- will interpret our, our scripture, our doctrine and our history in ways that serve us now. And we might claim that it's exactly the way it was back in first century Christianity or back in 1830 Mormonism, but I I'm less and less convinced that that's even a thing or possible. Yeah. But but as human beings, as that's, that's what we do.
0: Yeah. Some would say, some would say community of Christ excels at that, at uh, adapting.
1: Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and so and you I mean so, who who are the members of Community of Christ that are leaders in the Salt Lake Valley today? Well, they're yeah. former Brighamites, right? Yeah.
0: Absolutely.
1: So, so they, they have renegotiated. and and I think that there's a growing uh, growing interest in other options because people are dissatisfied, particularly a more liberal or progressive option because um, yeah. my tradition Current traditions seems to step forward in some respects and backwards in others. And when they step forward, they alienate the more conservative fundamentalist members. And when they step back, they alienate the more liberal or progressive. It's just we've been more willing to excommunicate the more liberal or progressive and less willing to excommunicate or marginalize the more conservative.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which happens? I'm as I'm listening to you uh, um, explaining it in that way, I'm thinking that happens in families. That happens in you know business institutions it happens because it's part of human nature it's a human nature
1: yes yeah
0: Yeah. it's who it's who and how we are so So is there
1: one one last little teaser and i okay uh, i won't elaborate but in the 2000s there was a chiropractor and leader of a sect called baha'is under the provision of the covenant um that was led by leland jensen Who goes by Doc Jensen, who read uh, C. Leroy Anderson's book about the Morrisites and used the prophet Canaan, George Williams' revelations about Deer Lodge being the location of the second advent of Jesus Christ, as confirmation and support for his calling as a prophet. And oh named the the state prison, which is at Deer Lodge, as uh, Ezekiel's temple and the location of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So it's another thing that I had heard, but relearned as I was preparing.
0: And that just brings another level of amazement at the creativity of people's religious imagination, because that that is just astounding. Although, if I'm going to think about where would jesus show up again i'm not real fond of the midwest so i'm thinking deer lodge actually has a little bit more
1: i was just gonna say the same thing like if i moved to deer lodge it's not because that's where ezekiel's temple is and that's where christ will come there are a lot of other reasons for me to. yes live lodge,
0: so. it's a beautiful place a beautiful <laughs> i love independence West. but <laughs> i know <laughs> i think i love montana more i'm not a midwesterner <laughs> i need those mountains So you, this is not a new um, topic for you. As you said, you've had a long kind of experience with dipping into these topics back and forth, but what from this particular story, the story of the Morrisites, has really kind of stayed with you, either as a a learning, kind of a key learning, or just something you can't shake? Is there something that's really done that?
1: I think we've probably hit on this already, but I would say that It's the power of stories to shape our views, our attitudes, our daily decisions, and ultimately the course of our lives. So what are the stories that we're listening to? What are the stories that we're telling? Why are we telling them? It's those stories. Those stories have such power to shape the direction we go and who we become.
0: Yeah, well said. So what's next? <laughs> I mean, next year in the spring lecture series, when I email you again, what am I going to be emailing you about next year?
1: Well, I would, I would really like to, I, I want to do more work on connecting the Morrisite role of membership with Susan Easton Black's early members of the reorganization and, and, and chart out. So do some more kind of pick and shovel work to see where those ties are. I do this stuff because of personal interest. When I was 12, I moved from Jackson, Wyoming to Kalispell, Montana. Seventh grade, my homeroom class, my homeroom teacher is Mr. Kendall. All I know about Mr. Kendall, and I don't even know how I found out about this, is that he was RLDS. We never talked about me being Latter-day Saint and him Mm -hmm. being RLDS. But guess what one of the names are on the Morrisite?
0: Uh-oh, was it Roll Kendall?
1: It's Kendall.
0: Because they went to Deer Lodge and they ended up in Cal <laughs>
1: so, so right on So I would really like, like to, to, to explore and tell those stories, those other stories of the Morrisite to our LDS uh, path.
0: Wonderful. I'll look forward to hearing some of that. I especially love the ones that have connections to kind of this northern part of the West that we don't usually associate when we start talking about Mormon history. We tend yes. to think Utah, Arizona, Idaho, but um, it's much bigger than that. Yes. And uh, and I don't know, it's probably been done, but even the connections to like the the platting of San Francisco by Samuel Brannan and some of those things that we don't really explore. Yeah. Well, any closing thoughts from our interview today before we wrap up our episode?
1: Um, yes. So I, I can't talk about the Morrisites without saying how grateful I am to see Leroy Anderson, who did an inestimable work to preserve records and tell the story of the Morrisites. He's a lapsed Latter-day Saint who I visited. He was a, so I directed the Institute of Religion at the University of Montana for the LDS Church he he was retired when I was there, but he was uh, an emeritus uh, sociology professor at the University of Montana. So I've been in his home a number of times and met, uh, spent time with him. He has an amazing collection of materials. And I, anyway, you can't talk about the Morrisites. We, we, we don't know what we know about the Morrisites without uh, Roy's uh, work. So I would encourage anybody that's interested to buy his book. It's I would buy the most recent edition, which is a 2010 publication, called Joseph Joseph Morris and the Saga of the Morrisites, and then in parentheses, revisited. So that's where we get the information about Leland Doc Jensen, which wasn't in previous editions. And I was able to locate some scepters that were used in the foreshadowing ceremony prior to the attack at Kingston Fort in the Church History Museum. I photographed them, and they made it into uh, Roy's uh, most recent publication. So Utah State University Press, 2010. I would also just say how grateful I am to my friends in Community of Christ and the Historic Sites Foundation for encouraging and supporting my research, and I've learned so much from you. And Karen, thank you for cup of joe for the countless contributions (laughs) that you make. And then probably finally, I would say as co-chair of the program committee for john whitmer go to come to our conference in texas september 21st through 24th in fredericksburg the theme of the conference is restoration tales from texas dust and uh, very much influenced by the whiteite movement um, mel johnson will play a significant role in all of that including being one of our plenary speakers uh, so i hope you'll be able to to make it, I know that's a long ways to go, but I'm sure it will pay off.
0: It's a long way to Fredericksburg, <laughs> but it, it is a lovely town uh, <laughs> on in Texas. Well, I want to thank you again. Uh, big thanks to Eric Paul Rogers for joining us today. You're always such a wonderful visit. I forget that we're recording our conversation for Project <laughs> Zion because it really is a fascinating conversation so for our listeners we encourage you to view this lecture you can always find the historic sites lectures on their website historic where they are archived the ones from both the winter 2022 and spring 2023 series and again this is cup of joe part of the project zion podcast i'm karen peter thanks for listening